Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 9. We'll be looking at the, uh, what is commonly known as the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. I'm going to uh, read just the first six verses of the chapter, and I'd like to ask Ariel if he'd pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. Let us pray. Our Lord, we come before you this morning. Body of believers, your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is a blessing to see in this passage the addition of a disciple early in the church that would come and preach Christ crucified to people who had not previously been drafted into the Gentiles of whom we are. And so Lord, we pray that we would appreciate this work that you did. Though you prophesied it from the beginning, yet here it is worked out. We see it more clearly. Lord, as your servant brings the word, bless his study, bless his preparation, that he would handle it rightly. I pray that our souls would be sanctified, made righteous, made more like your Son. In Christ's name, amen. 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 We'll read a passage from Numbers, chapter 25. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, and that was he saw the sin of a man of Israel lying with a woman of the pagan nations. When Phinehas saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into his tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. We read passages like that in the Old Testament, and we often think, well, that was rough. That was pretty violent. Kind of dealt with that pretty quickly. And so much so that, that many believers actually struggle with the Old Testament. They struggle with the, with the violence there. And many theologians uh, over the history of the church have tried to discount that as being actually a, a different God. Completely different. The violence. But listen to what we read in regard to Phineas and his actions. Again, from Numbers 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, 
has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God, and he made atonement for the sons of Israel. God actually was happy with what Phinehas did. Phinehas becomes in Israel a hero. A hero throughout their generations. A model of zeal for the Lord and for the traditions of the elders and for the law of Moses. A man who stood in the gap and who met sin with summary judgment. Running the two sinners through with a spear. Zeal that would today be called fanaticism. Fundamentalism. Zeal that we read about in other religions and other religions talk about in the history of the Christian church. Zeal that we don't find in our churches anymore. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating running people through with spears. This isn't about a a, a violent response to sin, but it's about zeal, and it's about Saul of Tarsus. Because Saul of Tarsus is a man that moderns have trouble with. He was a man who was fully absorbed in what he believed, and he acted upon it. And so clearly, he was a nutcase. And we must psychoanalyze him. Would that we knew his parents, because obviously we would find the problem. Either a, a tyrannical father or an overbearing mother. What Freud would do with Paul, actually what Freud did with Paul. Psychoanalyze Saul of Tarsus because you, you just don't do this stuff. You don't go around breathing threats and murder against people because of their religion. You don't drag them into prison. You don't consent to their deaths. You don't run people through with spears anymore. Come on. Is that how we're to understand Saul of Tarsus? Today, we hear about jihad, holy war. But we don't hear about jihad in, in a Christian sense. We hear it in an Islamic sense. And, and we Americans, who are considered by many Islamists to be the great Satan, jihad is now tainted by what we see in the newspapers, read in the news, and see going around us. Terrorism, we call it. Because we don't understand religious zeal. We look at someone like Saul today and we think that, that that has to trouble their conscience. How can they do that? Killing innocent people. People who had done them no harm. Killing people when, when their nations are not in a state of war but, but simply to terrorize because they don't like the other person's religion. And we have a problem with that. And so we superimpose our modern ideas back on, on Saul. And when it comes to Saul's conversion, which we're going to read about, there are many today that, that say that this, this was a release of Saul's inner guilt for all of the violence that he had committed against the Christians. Well, one author, I think, correctly says that Paul was not troubled by the death of Stephen. 
The execution of Christians did not torment his conscience, but was a testimony of his zeal for God, since he was following in the footsteps of Phinehas and of Mattathias, who was the founder of the Maccabees, in stamping out heresy. I, we, don't, we, we can't think of Saul correctly as, as thinking that he was somehow troubled by what he was doing. He honestly believed, according to the traditions of the elders, that he was living in the, in the, in the heritage of Phinehas. And therefore, he was doing God's will. And we shouldn't be surprised at this, because Jesus himself told his disciples, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. That, that's how we, we need to read this passage. Rather than thinking that, that Saul was some sort of nutcase, that he went a little bit too far. Like maybe, maybe Felix, the procurator, was right. Saul, your great learning has made you mad. No, no, Paul wasn't mad. He was absorbed. He was zealous for the traditions of the elders. He was zealous for the Torah. He was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He would have been an outstanding citizen in Second Temple Judea. He would have been a man that others would have said, you know, they would have said to their daughter, why can't you marry him? <laughs> Look at Saul. There's a good boy. <laughs> but we look at him and we think, well, this was, a, this was really the Lord turning someone around. I don't, I don't think he was turned around. I think he was pursuing a righteousness blindly. And his sight was given to him. And as soon as his sight was given to him, he kept going in the same direction with even greater zeal. Because he was made to understand that which he had been taught. He was made to understand that which he had lived with such vigor, with such violence. He's a hard man to understand. But I think part of that reason is because we don't know what zeal is anymore. Unless we're talking about football. Or, in Europe, football. <laughs> That's where we see zeal, isn't it? That's where we see people getting violent. That's where we see people fighting other people because they don't like their team. We see zeal now in the most inappropriate ways, and we can't understand zeal for religion. Now, practically speaking, and I'm, I'm certainly not advocating Islamic terrorism, but folks, we can't understand what's going on in their minds if we don't understand what was going on in Saul's mind. That there could be such a, a, an aversion, such a threat felt to one's beliefs that it would bring about violence is so foreign to us in 21st century America that we can't understand it when we see it with our own eyes. Saul was zealous for the traditions of the elders. He was zealous for God. He is, not, he is not a subject for modern psychoanalysis, but rather he's a subject for, for biblical analysis. And, and I think that maybe that's the why, why the Holy Spirit has preserved so much biographical information on Saul of Tarsus. We know almost nothing about the background of the other apostles. And the Bible itself is, is not big on biographical information. 
But we have Saul's information given to us mostly autobiographically. For example, the account of Saul's encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus occurs three times in the book of Acts. Here in chapter 9, and then again in chapter 22 we read, I am a Jew. This is Paul giving his testimony before the Jews, before the Sanhedrin. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. Now that would have, that would have brought got people's attention. Strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And I persecuted the way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. Well, there we read something similar to what we just read. I persecuted the way unto death. And once again in chapter 26 we read, as he is giving his testimony before King Agrippa, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. Well, that's... That's some insight into the mind of Saul of Tarsus that we, we don't hear much about anymore because we don't understand what it meant to be a Pharisee. What it meant to be a Pharisee was to hold fast to the law of God, the Torah. But not just what was written, the written Torah. That, that much the Sadducees did but also to the oral Torah, the traditions that they believed were also given to Moses on Mount Sinai and were handed down from generation to generation, now through the rabbis. The oral Torah, the oral Torah is what set the Pharisee off from the Sadducee, along with some other theological beliefs concerning, for example, the spirit and resurrection. But they held to a way of life and that was called halakha. A very important word in Judaism, halakha. It's a path. It's a way of living. Paul was one who followed this path. It was, it was as he said, according to the strictest order of our religion. He says of himself, when he's writing to the, to the Philippians, that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. See, that, that, was, that, that meant something. Okay, we read that and we think, I don't get it. As to the law, I adhered to both what was written and what was taught. I adhered to every single oral tradition as to how I would order my life in order to be walking in obedience to the law of God. That's a Pharisee. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church. See, these things all, to go, all go together. If, if, we need to, if we have to understand what it is that brought about persecution and understand what it is that the church went through to become what she has become, then we need to understand the mind of Saul because he was a defender of the traditions of the true religion, the religion that came by revelation of God to Moses. 
And in defense of that true religion, as he said to Agrippa, I thought in my own mind that I must do many hostile things against the name of Jesus the Nazarene. You see, in Saul's mind, there was no greater threat in his day to the Pharisaic way of life and to the Torah of God than these Christians. And so he persecuted them. This was a matter of honor, not just shame. He wasn't, he wasn't ashamed. The Holy Spirit would soon teach Paul to count it all but loss. This, this, is, the, this is the miracle, I think, that we see in Paul. Not that he turned around from some psychotic, violent man, but rather he turned from a man who put his entire hope in his own following of the law of God to a man who preached the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That's the conversion. But it really isn't a turning around. It's a recognition, a coming to an understanding that only comes by the Holy Spirit that that's what God has been teaching all along. Though just shall walk by faith. We read here that in uh, Acts chapter 9 that he had received letters from the leaders. Now, he's an interesting character in that we, we've just recently read Gamaliel's speech to the Sanhedrin where Gamaliel cautioned the Sanhedrin against doing anything against these Christians. And really, Gamaliel has come to be known as a, a very pacifistic type of wise man but probably his best student. I imagine Gamaliel in his old age was talking about my, my student Saul. You know, he was a good one. He was, he was great, and he's also violent. Now, he didn't go to Gamaliel for these letters. He, he probably went to the Sadducees. He probably went to the family of Caiaphas, who were kind of in cahoots with the Romans. And the Romans were like, okay, Anybody who's causing you trouble will eventually cause us trouble, so you deal with it so we don't have to. Because if we deal with it, you know, you get the fly swatter and you deal with it, or we'll bring the howitzer in and we'll deal with it. Okay, so they give these letters to Saul and they say, okay, you, you go to Damascus. If you find any, any belonging to the way. Now, I, I find it interesting that we're, we're reading the writings of a Gentile here, Luke. Okay, he's the one who recorded this history. And twice we read about the way in, in, in Paul's own situation. We also read about it three or four more times in the book of Acts. And yet, almost nothing is said about this word by way of explanation. In fact, here's a, here's a 20th century uh, commentator who says, um, It was evidently a term used by the early Christians to denote their own movement considered as a way of life. Duh. Yeah, it was evidently a, a word that was used by the early Christians. Yeah, because that's what it's used by the early Christians. I thought this was brilliant. <laughs> I could have written that. <laughs> is that all it is? I mean, it's just a way of life. Why did it bother anybody? I mean, we got so many ways of life today, you can't imagine anybody being upset. There's so many alternative ways. Why, were, why was Saul so upset? about the way. Why is it capitalized in my Bible? You know, that's one of those things I read it and I see it capitalized and my question is, well, this isn't German, so why is the noun capitalized? 
Why is the way so important that Saul wants to bring anyone belonging to it back to Jerusalem to trial and almost assuredly death? Well, I think it's because the word isn't just a word that the early Christians used. If they had been speaking Hebrew, they would have said, anyone belonging to this particular halakha. Because that's what that word means. It means, literally, the way. And for the Jew, especially the Pharisee, it means a walk of life that adheres to both the written and the oral Torah. In other words, it means to be a Pharisee. Okay? This is why we're getting down to where Paul or Saul lived here. These people aren't just another theological group, because there were a bunch of them in Judea under the Second Temple era, okay? And they did not get persecuted to the death. The, the joke is, if you put five rabbis together, you'll have six opinions. Okay, they had a whole bunch of different theological views. This was a problem. Needed to be eradicated, needed to be stamped out. In fact, this was a problem for a modern day, speaking in Second Temple, Phineas. You could almost see Saul of Tarsus with his spear marching to Damascus because he'd heard there were some Christians there. I'm going to stamp out this halakha because it immediately threatens my halakha, which I believe to be the truth. One author says to call Judaism a faith is actually a piece of Christian cultural imperialism. Now, we're not guilty of that, but yes, we are. <laughs> Imagining that because Christianity thinks of itself as a faith, other peoples do the same. Judaism characteristically thinks of itself as a way, a halakha, a life path, a way of being in the world. We, we think of the Pharisees as being legalistic, that they were trying to work their way to heaven and into God's favor. No, these were people who already had God's favor. They had already known that they had God's favor because they were God's chosen people. They were simply walking in obedience to God's pleasure. They were walking in obedience to God's will, which was revealed to them in His law. And it was a path. It wasn't a, a religion per se. They, they, they would never separate the sacred from the secular in their lives. Not the Pharisees. Because the Torah Im, imbued all aspects of their life. Now, they went overboard. You know, Jesus tells us that they went overboard. But their, their initial attitude was not to create a new religion. But was to walk the paths of righteousness for God's name's sake. He was leading them in the paths of righteousness. This is the way, walk ye in it, the, the prophet says. And that word halakha became the, the meaning of life to them. This is the way we walk, the way. Well, when the Christians started saying, no, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, what he was saying was, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the meaning of Torah. Obedience to Jesus is obedience to the law. He is, as Paul will write later, the end of the law for all who believe. We might say Jesus is the halakha. And that's saying too much 
for the Pharisee. We don't read much about persecution of the Christians by the Sadducees, just as we don't read much about persecution of Christians by mainline Christian denominations. Because once a group within a religion ceases to care about their doctrine or their future and cares only for the comforts of their life and their political situation, they're not interested in persecuting anyone else. The persecution that the, that the early Christians felt most keenly was from the Pharisees. Because they, the Christians, were presenting a new way. But it wasn't a new way. They were claiming it actually to be the same way. That, that's what's remarkable. They were saying to their brothers and sisters in Judaism, this is that which was written. This, this fulfills that which was written. This is the, the seed of woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah of Israel. This is the way, folks. You just can't see it. And so who better to become the one to explain that to the Jews than their, their leader, their Phineas, their zealot, as it were, Saul of Tarsus. But perhaps in a, an example of, of divine irony, Saul of Tarsus would not become the apostle to the, uncirc or the circumcised. He would not become the messenger of God to the Jews. To, to the group of people that, that he would be the, perhaps the best trained. I mean, think about the credentials. We often do this. Oh, man, if he just became a Christian, he would, he would be so good as a Christian. <laughs> we, I mean, we reason that way. Now, if we were doing it, who would have been the apostle to the Jews? Peter? A.K.A. foot in the mouth? Peter, the Galilean fisherman, Peter, the unlettered man, who would not be able to, to reason theologically with the, with the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees, or Saul of Tarsus, trained at the feet of the most notable rabbi of that era, Gamaliel, whose descendants would run the Sanhedrin for the next 75 years. Let, let's let him loose. This is, this is that example of celebrity evangelism that's so popular in, in our day. You know, oh, if we could just get that one to believe. It would have such an influence for the Lord. We have to do the Lord's work for him because he doesn't know what he's doing, right? No, he shows us, uh, no, I don't reason the way you reason. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are high above your ways. You see, Saul... You see how notable he is, how he exceeds all of his countrymen in zeal for the Lord, how he holds to the, to the traditions, how he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's going to be my Gentile, my apostle to the Gentiles. <laughs> we'll fix your wagon. But you know what? All of that training didn't go to waste. Because one of the, one of the most difficult questions we have as Christians who are Gentiles is what is the relationship of the church to Israel? If you want the answer, come Thursday night. <laughs> um, you know, we, we think, what, what is the relationship to the, of the church to Israel? Is, is the church just a parenthesis, as so many believe? You know, all the promises were to Israel, and, and they didn't accept them, and they rejected Jesus, so now God's doing the church. Well, from whose pen do we read the most about Israel now? Paul's. Okay. You see, his training wasn't wasted. 
But there was something that God needed to show us as well as Saul of Tarsus. There was a, a grace that Saul didn't get. Now, we call it in Reformed camp, election. And, you know, this is maybe a very good example of the Arminian's straw man with regard to sovereign election. And I've heard this many times, and that is, God does not drag people kicking and screaming into heaven. To which I answer, yes, he does, praise God. You know, yes, he does. He takes someone who's breathing threats and murder against Jesus Christ. Now, he thinks he's doing it against this sect of Jews called Christians. But Jesus quickly tells him, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Jesus had already told his disciples that that is the one who they really hate. When they hate you, it is because they hated me first. When they persecute you, take courage because they persecuted me first. What do we say about the election or the sovereign selection of Paul? Well, one of the principal tenets of Arminian doctrine is that the sinner must have the final word. You see, it's only love if it's free. And so the sinner must be the one who chooses to love God through Jesus Christ. The sinner must be the one who makes that final choice. The problem is from Paul's own pen, in Romans particularly, as he recounts the doctrine of man from the Old Testament, we find out that no man is capable of making that choice. In fact, we find out that no man really wants to. It doesn't mean that no man wants to go to heaven. Most people want to go to heaven. When you give them the opportunity between heaven and burning for eternity in hell, most people choose heaven. But they want to do it their way, okay? not God's way. And that's where we get all our religions. We want to do it, but we want to do it our way. But what do we hear about Paul? Well, God tells Ananias in, uh, in chapter 9 here, He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Well, obviously Paul was chosen. And so the Arminian says God does elect certain individuals who are crucial for his overall plan of bringing about the salvation of the world. This is a, more of a selective election. So you'll, you'll read about the election of Pharaoh. You'll read about the, the election of Pilate. Now, that doesn't mean these were believers. Because what's being said is, is no, God simply chooses individuals to do his will. And, and so we read of the election of Paul, not so much to salvation, but to the apostleship. It's selective coercion rather than universal coercion. I don't think that's any better, okay? Because if, if man's will is, is so vitally important that God should preserve it in, all, in any case, he should preserve it in all cases. He should not interfere with Paul's desire, Saul's desire, to persecute the church just because if he's allowed to continue, he'll wipe out the church. And God can't have that. See, that's the reasoning that goes on. I think rather it is better that we understand that God does select men from before the foundation of the world. But he doesn't order their lives in such a way 
that those who are elected will always be good people, especially up to the time of their conversion. Paul's own attitude is related a number of times in his epistles. But in one he writes, But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace. See, I think that's what Saul needed to learn. That's what we all need to learn. That it's not of flesh, it's not of will, it's not of the will of man or my own will, it's not of my heritage, whether it be from Abraham or my parents were Christians. None of those things matter. And it's not of works. It's not of zeal. Even if you were zealous for the traditions of the elders of this church, I mean, even if you went around spearing people for the sake of God, it would do you no good because it gives no glory to God. It retains glory to the sinner, the zealot, the person who is on fire. Rather, it was his grace. Not selective election, not celebrity evangelism, but rather the grace of God. And it's proof, it's really very powerful proof of the words of Jesus to Nicodemus. You must be born again. You see, Paul was following the letter of the law in the spirit of Phineas. And you couldn't get much better than that in Judaism. But he was blind. He could see. And so the Lord took away his physical sight in order to emphasize his spiritual blindness. He'll talk about this later, but we read in this passage that when, in verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to you, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. Now that doesn't happen to all of us physically. But it happens to every single believer, spiritually, metaphysically. You may have grown up in the church. You may be a good person. And you may be trusting in your good works. That God won't be upset with you because you're a pretty good person. You read your Bible. You pray for people. You attend church regularly. You try to do good things. You try not to get angry at the other drivers, but it's hard. You know, you do all of these things and God will take that all into account. And he says... No, I won't. Because all our righteousness is as filthy rags. All the good that we can do is not good enough because we do not do it for the glory of God. We do it rather for the glory of self. Being able to say, I did it my way. But no one will stand before the Lord in the judgment and say, I did it my way. If we're to stand at all, it's because we did it the way. We did it the halakha, Jesus Christ. And that's what Saul learned on the road to Damascus and in the house on the street called Straight. He learned that it wasn't the path of Pharisaism, but rather the path of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. He would not simply throw away all that he had learned from Gamaliel, not at all. But now it would all come under new light. It would have new meaning. And, and we read in verse 20, he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. This wasn't so much a turning around of Saul as a, a finally taking away the blinders.
that he might see. And he becomes a powerful, powerful apostle. But before that, in verse 19, uh, verses 18 and 19, there's, there's just something very peaceful about how Luke records this conversion and baptism. This is a man of violence. We start out the chapter with a man who's breathing threats and violence against the church. And then we read that he arose and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Now that's just, just a minor point, isn't it? And yet it's so peaceful. Ananias didn't say, okay, Saul, get out there. Get out there and preach. No, he, he was baptized, he took food, and he was strengthened. Well, in a sense, that's what we do when we partake of communion. We take food. Now, it's not enough to fill our bodies, but it's plenty to fill our souls. It is the body and blood of Jesus Christ broken and shed on our behalf. It's a reminder of the price God paid for our salvation. It's also a reminder that it's, it's not by works, lest any man should boast, but rather by grace through faith. And, and so now we, we turn to take the Lord's Supper together. And so I want to encourage anyone here who has been baptized, because frankly I firmly believe that baptism is the sign and the seal of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is what joins us together into one body, not only in this building, but with believers throughout this world. So if you have been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, I invite you to partake of communion with us.